Let's open our Bibles now together to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We have made it all the way to chapter 8. We have been walking along with Paul as he has unfolded these glorious truths from Scripture. And we have seen at times, uh, we've been caused by Paul's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit to have to spend a good deal of time meditating on things like the depth of our sin, the depth of our guilt, the, the weight of our condemnation. And now as we come to Romans chapter 8, we come into the glories of salvation. And it is, it is exciting uh, to begin to come into this next section of this great epistle. So let's read together. We're going to be beginning in verse number 1, and we are going to be ending in verse number 1. Hear the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good and precious gift that you have given to us, that we might know our God, that we might hear the voice of our God, that you have preserved your word in perfection, that we can know when we read your word, we're, we're reading pure truth. We are hearing directly from our God. And so I pray that, that you would enlighten our understanding. I pray your word would accomplish its supernatural work in us this morning, causing hearts that are dead and bound in sin to live, causing eyes that are blinded to see causing us, your people, to be transformed more and more into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 8 of Romans is considered by many to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible. It's been called the Holy of Holies of the Christian faith. It's been said that if, a Bible, if the Bible is a beautiful golden ring, that the book of Romans is the diamond that is set in that ring, and chapter 8 is the sparkling tip of that diamond. Chapter 8 begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation from Christ whatsoever. The, the entire chapter is about our absolute security in Christ. It is such an encouraging chapter. And this first verse that we're considering this morning is really a summary of the gospel itself. Because of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, our salvation in all of its aspects has been fully accomplished. All of those who are trusting in Christ have been justified, are being sanctified, will be glorified. This is God's saving purpose in all of eternity, and God always accomplishes all of his purposes. And so Paul says to us now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing verse. Eight words in the Greek, but a world of meaning in those eight words. It's even a more astounding statement when we consider what Paul has just told us in chapters one through seven that bring us to this point where he makes this statement. We have seen in... in the early chapters of this book, chapter 3, verse 10, says there's no one righteous, not even one, that we are all sinners 
Chapter 5, verse 10 has told us that we are enemies of God because of our sin. Chapter 2, verse 10 said that no one has an excuse whatsoever. All stand condemned before a holy God because he told us in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And then even after having been brought from death to life, we saw last week in chapter 7 that our propensity to sin is ever-present in us. Paul describes sin as a rotting corpse that is bound to us. Compared to the perfect standard, the standard of the spotless righteousness of Christ, we are utterly, as Paul says, wretched. Wretched men and women. And so we would expect after that statement, after all that Paul has said, as we come to chapter 8 and this next proclamation that he is going to make, when Paul is about to, in light of all that, make some great proclamation, we would expect him to say, therefore there is guaranteed condemnation for everyone. Even those who claim to know Jesus Christ, because that's exactly what your sin deserves. That's what would be fair. That's what we have earned. Surely mankind can't get off the hook from the things that we have seen in this book and from what we know to be true of our own hearts. Surely we can't be let off the hook without some sort of punishment. The natural mind of mankind demands some kind of payment. And that's why religions all around the world, throughout all of history, virtually every religion that man has created has some sort of penance attached to it. Penance being punishment or suffering in order to atone for sin. Every religion mankind has made has that. Penance is one of the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church who teaches that penance is an act whereby a sinner can atone for sins by doing some sort of religious practice. Maybe it's praying a certain number of prayers. Maybe it is doing some sort of good and religious deed. That's why many Roman Catholics make a pilgrimage to St. Joseph's Oratory in Montreal, which is the largest Catholic cathedral in North America. And they, pilg- they make this pilgrimage there so that they can climb up the steps, 280 of them, stone steps, on their knees to reach the cathedral. And in that cathedral, there is a shrine, and in that shrine, the bones of a priest are kept. And the thought is, if we can climb up these steps on our knees and approach this shrine... And touch those bones, touch where those bones are stored, that we will somehow earn salvation. One British reporter told of another ritual of penance that he witnessed in the Philippines where ten men and one woman woman were voluntarily crucified. Here's what he writes. Close to a thousand residents and tourists watched under the hot sun as eleven people staggered into a fenced knoll where neighbors dressed as Roman centurions waited with wooden crosses, hammers, and four-inch nails. One man who works as a bus driver grimaced as the nails were driven into his palms and feet as he was nailed to a cross. The cross was hoisted aloft for the crowd to see. This is the 14th year in a row that this man has had his hands and feet nailed to a cross. One American tourist said it's amazing to see people sacrificing themselves for their sins. This is a central tenet of Roman Catholicism. It is penance that we must do in order to atone for our sins. Many devout Muslims have the same practice, and even some sects of Roman Catholicism where they flagellate their backs 
with whips and rods until they're bloody and battered as a means of penance, as a means of discipline, as a means of earning forgiveness from God. Millions of Hindus every 12 years go to a festival. It's believed to be the largest single event, religious event in the world. And there they'll lie down on beds of nails, lie down on broken glass, lie down on red hot coals, stare directly into the sun until they go blind. The ceremony culminates with many slicing their tongue with a knife so that they'll never speak clearly again. Why are they doing these things? It's an attempt to purge their sins and gain residence in their version of heaven. But, but all of these acts of penance are the very opposite of what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us. We can never atone for our sins. Why? Because they're infinite. It would take infinite atonement to atone for our sins. We're not capable of that. We can never earn our pardon. There's no penalty we can pay. Salvation is received only as a free gift of God's grace because of the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, whose merits are infinite. We're freed from our much-deserved condemnation only on the basis of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So here in Romans chapter 8, Verse 1, what we have in front of us is our statement of pardon. Let's take a closer look then at this glorious statement of pardon in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But before we do that, I want to make one quick note. If you're reading along in the King James translation, you wondered why I stopped where I stopped, because your verse 1 goes farther than what we just read. King James adds, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So why does the King James translation have that statement and the other translations don't have that statement? Well, there's a pretty simple answer. It's because of when the King James translation was published. It was published in 1611. Certain things hadn't happened yet by 1611. Namely, we hadn't found lots and lots and lots of many older manuscripts of Scripture than were available at that time. And so... What happened is, as they found all these manuscripts of older, uh, older manuscripts of Scripture, what they found out was that phrase that's there in the King James is not in any of them. None of them. In fact, it's, it's only in one line of later manuscripts that came later, and that only from one particular region. Every other manuscript does not have it in there. But that one particular line of manuscripts that are later manuscripts, not as close to when the scripture was written, they're more recent, and from one particular region happens to be the line of manuscripts that the King James was translated from. So it's got this phrase that the others don't. Now, you will hear statements about passages like this. Because this is a good statement, isn't it? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Is that important? Vital. Okay, so you'll hear things like this. Okay, so here's what these demonic other translations have done. They've removed this. They don't want you to know that you have to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They want to hide that truth from you. They've corrupted Scripture, and the reason they've done it is because all these other translations are demonically inspired. Is that what's happened here? And the answer is a resounding no. That is absolutely not what has happened here. This statement has not been removed from the Bible. It was an addition to certain manuscripts later on down the line. 
And we know that because of how many old manuscripts we've got. Here's the other thing. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's how I can tell you that that's not only an important theological truth, but it is one that is essential for every Christian. Because here's what happened in the one strain of manuscripts that has it that the King James is translated from. If you briefly look to verse number 8, you're going to see what happened. They took the phrase from verse number 8 and they put it word for word on the end of verse number 1. Is it verse 4? I'm glad you're saying this. Yeah, it's definitely verse 4. Yeah. So good. Verse 4. Thank you. The end of verse number four, and they stuck it in verse number one. That just happened in one line. So we've got all these old manuscripts, and somewhere down the line, one scribe went, but I think this fits pretty nice, like right here, also. Slide it in. So there's nothing been corrupted, and this truth hasn't been lost. It's there in every translation, because it's there in verse four in the original manuscripts. You tracking with me? I just wanted to clear that up, because I don't want to be like 30 minutes into the sermon, and someone's still sitting there going... Corrupting the scriptures. Good. Verse 8 consists of eight words in the Greek, and it is an emphatic statement. Every word emphatic. The way it is structured, emphatic. Each word filled with weight and meaning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to unpack this glorious sentence, this glorious statement, by looking at five key words or phrases here. We start with this first, this first declaration in our English translation, there is therefore. This connects, this word therefore, it connects everything that came before it. In light of all that, everything Paul has said so far, what he's saying here is, on the basis of everything I've just taught you, let me tell you what's true. Everything he's just said about the sinful depravity of man, about our hopeless condition, dead in our sins, about our inability to save ourselves and our lack of desire to do so, and about Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinful man, and how by his merit alone, which is credited to us by grace alone, received by us through faith alone, it's, it's only there that we can be saved. So Paul says, in light of all of that, here's what's true. And that brings us to the next word, and it is such an encouraging word. There is therefore now. Therefore now. In the present. We could translate this, therefore at this present time there is no condemnation. Is that not encouraging? It's an incredible statement. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to know that you are no longer condemned. Freedom from condemnation is something you can enjoy right here, right now. In this life, at this moment, you can experience this freedom. This statement here, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is our personal pardon from the king of kings, from the righteous judge of the universe. We know how pardons work. If, if you've been convicted of a felony, there are certain privileges and rights that you will not have for the whole rest of your life. But what happens if you receive a pardon? It's just like you've never done it. It's not like being released from prison. All those privileges restored to you. You are no longer a felon. That is not true of you at all. This is our statement of pardon right here from the holy judge of the universe. And there could be no one less deserving of this than us. 
But for the Christian, we need not fear condemnation. All who have placed their faith in Christ alone have received from him the gift of salvation and are safely secure in him right now. Think about the glory of that statement. Your eternal life doesn't begin when you get to heaven. It began when you were made alive in Christ. There's nothing else like this. There's no other kind of security like this. Now, we haven't yet been clothed with an immortal body. As we saw last week, the body we have isn't going to last. Many of you feel this. You felt it this morning. You're still feeling the effects of the time change from last week because you're getting old, just like me. We know our body's not going to last. We haven't yet been made physically into a new creation, but the truth is we have been made into a new creation. We've been granted eternal life already. We've been saved, really saved. We're safe in him now and forever. What what a glorious statement. What a glorious truth is packed into that one little word, those three little letters, now. The next word in our English translation is really the key word of this whole verse, the word no. There is therefore now no. This is a strong word. It's a word of absolute certainty. In the Greek, Paul actually uses a a unique kind of word for no here. He uses a compound word for no. This, This makes this an extremely emphatic statement that Paul is making, much more so than the normal Greek word for the word no. What Paul is saying in his word choice here is there is absolutely no condemnation for the believer. Absolutely none. Not an ounce, not a drip. Also in the Greek, this is actually the first word in the sentence. If you were to just read this in a Greek New Testament, the very first word in this proclamation is no. Greek grammar is a little different than English. Word order can be rearranged in Greek if you want to make a point, if you want to make a particular emphasis. So if you want to really emphasize a word, you stick it right at the beginning of the sentence. So it's the very first thing that people see. That's what Paul does here. He uses a very emphatic word choice for the word no. And then in order to amplify that emphasis, he sticks it at the very front of the sentence. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear. He is practically shouting now, that condemnation is completely and utterly out of the question for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is absolutely no condemnation left for us, not not one little bit. Not one little bit of condemnation remains for those who have died and been raised with Christ. Oh, that'll get you through the day. Fourth, there's therefore now no Condemnation, another strong Greek word, condemnation. It's a harsh word. It means a death sentence. It means damnation, eternal death. Paul, Paul's told us as, as, he, as he places us exactly where we are, as he holds the mirror up to us in the early chapters of Romans and we see our reflection, we see that the noose is already around our neck. We're not just condemned. It defines everything about our condition and who we are. 
We stood condemned. We stood already sentenced. But he says there is now no eternal death sentence for you. There is no penalty for the crimes you've committed against God. There is no sentence of condemnation hanging over you. The noose has been removed from your neck. What an amazing declaration this is. There is no death sentence and you don't even have to serve any time. In fact, there's no penance for you to do in order for your treasonous sin against God to be forgiven, not counted against you. Man-made religion could never conceive of a thing like this. Man-made religion has never conceived of something like this. Now, Paul doesn't tell us there's no grounds for our condemnation. Why doesn't he tell us there's no grounds for our condemnation anymore? Because there is grounds for our condemnation. We are actually very deserving of condemnation. So if that's true, if we're deserving of condemnation, and we've spoken of this many times in the book of Romans, a judge who just told a murderer that he could walk with no penalty whatsoever, not only are you not condemned, you don't have to go to jail. In fact, I'm pardoning you. We don't consider you a criminal or a murderer in any way. We would say of that judge, he is unjust. So how could God do this? How, how, how could God issue us such a pardon? Doesn't justice demand that the guilty be punished? How, how can God overlook the grounds of our deserved condemnation? J.I. Packer sums, it, sums this quandary up like this. Isn't God's moral perfection seen in his perfect judgment? Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be good and admirable? Would a God be morally praiseworthy who put no distinction between his saints and the beasts of history, the Hitlers and Stalins, if we dare use those names? Would he be perfect then? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. And not to judge the whole world would be a show of moral indifference and partiality. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being not indifferent to issues of right and wrong is the fact that he has committed himself to judging the whole world. So how can Paul say that there's not even one little bit of condemnation for us? How can God maintain his righteousness and pardon us? Well, the last phrase in this verse explains it to us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be a Christian is not just to be saved by Christ. It's not simply being out, outwardly identified with Christ. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. It's to be in Christ. In fact, that's the Bible's designation for us. More often than the word Christian is used is the statement to be in Christ. In other words, Christ lives in us. We live in him. As John MacArthur notes in his commentary, this is a mystery of the gospel. I, do you understand exactly how it works that you're in Christ and he's in you? We don't. We don't understand that. But our union with Christ, although it is one of the great mysteries of the gospel, Scripture makes it clear this is exactly what's true of you. He is in you. You are in him. You are hidden in him. You are united with him. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this then is the key. This then is the key to receiving your pardon. You must be in Christ. 
That's the only way to receive this pardon. Since Jesus was condemned, since he was offered as a propitiation on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God for the sins of all who would ever trust in him, those who come to him by faith are now hidden in him. They are no longer within reach of God's wrath because they're hidden in Christ. But there's something even greater than that. There's something even greater than being outside the reach of God's wrath, and it's this. You're no longer an object of God's wrath. The holy judge of all the universe who will judge all men righteously has no desire whatsoever to judge you. Has no wrath for you. He has no desire to pour his wrath out on those who are in Christ. They are safe eternally. They are loved eternally. They are accepted eternally. They are resting in the finished work of Christ on their behalf. What a glorious thing it is to be in Christ. An Old Testament event sheds light on this profound New Testament ministry, mystery. Noah's Ark, we talked a little bit about this in the adult Sunday school. I was going to have to shut you down this morning, Joseph, if you were going to steal my thunder. But we didn't, didn't have time to really develop it, so we're, we're okay. Noah's Ark, of course, you know the story well. It was built over 100 years after it was built. God commanded Noah, cover the ark inside and outside in pitch. Pitch being a a tar-like subject in order to waterproof the ark. So he covers the ark inside and outside in this pitch. Well, the word pitch is the same Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament in various other places, only there it doesn't mean pitch. Where it's used in the other places in the Old Testament, it means atonement. Ransom. Well, it's not too hard to draw the connections here, is it? The ark is an example. The ark is a picture of atonement. The ark, if we, if we can carry this picture out just a little bit farther, the ark faced the wrath of God, did it not? The ark faced the judgment of God. It faced the sentence of God's moral purity of God's righteousness as it came down hard on sinful humanity, but those inside the ark were saved. And you know the rest of the story well. If you've been to, uh, down to Kentucky to Answers in Genesis to the ark encounter there, they beautifully draw out this correlation between the ark and the atonement. They do so beautifully and powerfully. I'd invite you, encourage you to go down there. Uh, it is a blessing. We benefit here every week from Answers in Genesis and the ministry that goes on there. If one of you could send this to them and they might want to send me a little financial remuneration for <laughs> plugging them, it would be appreciated. No, we love them and their ministry there. But remember, after Noah built the ark, After he and his family built the ark, God didn't tell them, okay, you've built it. The rains are going to come. Noah, hold on tight. Family, hold on tight. He didn't have them like hammer some pegs into the outside of the ark for them to hold on to. He didn't say, make sure you don't fall off this ark. If you can hold on tight, if you can keep from falling off, as long as you hang on, you'll be saved. But if you let go, if if you fall out, you're going to be lost. No, what did God do? God shut the door behind them. They weren't going to fall out. God clothed, closed the door behind them, and then the wrath of God fell on all of humanity. 
the righteous, right, good wrath of God fell on the entire world. And those who were outside the ark were swept away to destruction, all of them. But those who were inside the ark were held secure. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about the ark. I find it so encouraging. He says, Noah fell down many times inside the ark, but he never fell out of it. Why? Because God closed the door behind him. What it meant for Noah and his family to be in the ark is just a shadow. It's just a foretaste of what it means to be in Christ. In Christ, our secure, atoning ark of salvation, there is no condemnation now and forever. What a glorious pardon we have received. What about the unbeliever? What about those who have not trusted in Christ? What about those who have not submitted their lives to Christ? Maybe they believe in him. They believe what the Bible says. There's a God and yes, Jesus. They've never bowed their knee. They've never submitted their life to him. What, what, what of them? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Second half of verse 7, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. The Lord Jesus himself says in John three eighteen, whoever believes in me, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The, the, the world, the whole world, is divided into two categories before the throne of God. There are only two categories that matter. We live in a world right now that's trying to put us all in as many different categories as we can and say this is the most significant thing about us. I will tell you, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, when you stand before the throne of the Holy Creator of all things the righteous judge of all things, there are two categories that matter and only two, those outside of Christ and those in Christ. Or we could say those who are trying to pay for sin themselves or those whose sins have already been paid for by Christ. So the question then is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you outside of him? And don't think just because you were raised in a Christian home with Christian parents that that makes you in. Don't think just because you show up to church most Sunday mornings that that makes you in. These things don't mean anything without a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question isn't, do you go to church a lot? The question isn't, do you believe in God? The question isn't, are you a lot better person than those pagans you work with? The question is, are you in Christ Jesus? Can you say for sure that there is no condemnation for you? Everybody loves that, song, that hymn we sang this morning, It Is Well With My Soul. I'm sure hundreds, maybe thousands of churches sang that same song this morning around the world. How many countless people sang those words, but it couldn't be any less true of them than if they were singing about their own ability to fly or how that they were unicorns. 
There is no condemnation only for those who, by faith, are in Christ Jesus. Only for them is this glorious statement true. Only to them does this statement apply. If you are outside, I urge you today, I urge you, come inside the ark and be saved. Outside is darkness. Outside is death. Outside is hopelessness. Outside is misery. Outside is eternal condemnation. Inside is light. Inside is life. Inside is hope. Inside is joy and peace. Inside is eternal freedom and security. But most important, inside is God himself. He offers you himself. Hear the call of Jesus to sinners who are outside. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to Jesus. If you're breathing right now, the door stands open on that ark. Well, for many, it's closed. They've breathed their last. They've stood before the judgment seat of God. If you can hear my voice, it means that door is open for you. Come to Jesus. Call on him to save you. He will have you. You've not gone too far. You're not too far out of his grasp. Today's the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. It is not a safe thing. It is not safe to stand before the open door of the ark with the noose around your neck, the sure condemnation of God bearing down on you and then to say, maybe tomorrow because today I love my sin. Oh, friend, that's that's the most dangerous thing you could do. Not only is tomorrow not promised, but who knows whether that choice in that moment will harden your heart sufficiently to the point that you'll never come in. Today's the day of salvation. And you don't need to pray or repeat after me prayer with someone. You need to call on the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue you from your condemnation, to rescue you from your sin. If, if the Holy Spirit is granting to you repentance of sin and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not need to parrot back the words of someone who says, pray this after me. I can assure you, he will give you the words. And if the Lord is working on your heart right now, today's the day. This is the moment. And if you're in Christ already, what more could we do with this statement we just read but rejoice and be glad? What a joyous statement. What a glorious statement. What a life-giving statement we have had. As Paul will say later in this very chapter, if God is for us, who can be against us? So what does it mean? It means that when we look out our windows, when we look on the television, which is a dangerous practice, when we read the news, and we see darkness around us, We see a world running fast after darkness and we wonder what is to become of us. We can live courageously for Christ. That's what it means. If God's for us, who can be against us? We can resist the devil. We can resist sin. We can resist temptation. We can resist the world. 
We can live boldly for God's Son who died for us and lives for us, who removed our condemnation, who pardoned us, who has hidden us inside himself. And that's just the beginning of the glorious benefits that Paul's going to unfold for us in chapter 8. If you're just visiting with us for one Sunday, you should read Romans chapter 8 like 48 times so that you don't miss out on all the things we're going to be talking about here on Sunday mornings in the weeks to come. What a joy, what a privilege to be in Christ. What a gift. I pray that you grow in the knowledge and in the joy of what it means to belong to him. There's no greater thing. There's no greater treasure. What what a glorious salvation. What, What an astoundingly good and gracious and mighty God to offer and accomplish a salvation like this one. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we are humbled as we consider together the glories of your great salvation, as we consider the vastness of your love for us, the power of of your saving grace, the righteousness of your judgment. Lord, we can't fully comprehend all of who you are, but you have revealed to us in your word sufficiently that we stand humbled and amazed and grateful and filled with joy and hope in you, our God, and your great salvation. Help us to live our lives in light of this glorious truth. Let this be the the lenses we look through that color everything that we see so that we won't fall into despair over trivial matters, so that we won't give our time and our attention and our lives to things that don't count for anything in eternity, but Lord, so that we would live righteously as your people day by day and Lord, I pray especially for those who are here this morning that are outside the ark of Christ. Lord, they have not trusted savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not turned from their sins and submitted to him. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would call their name right now. Even as you have called them in your word, commanded them in your word to come, Lord, that you now by your spirit would call them, cause their heart to live, cause them to respond in faith and repentance. I pray especially for those who have thought that they're in the ark but are very much outside. I pray in your kindness that you would reveal to them the desperation of their condition so that they would turn to you, so that they would run to you and in you find life. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your mercy to us, Lord. We rejoice in you, our God, and your great salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen.